What's up, everyone? Welcome back. It's good to have you here. This is episode 138 of your favorite podcast, Ranching Reboot, and I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. Ranching Reboot podcast is made possible by the support of my amazing patrons at patreon.com slash redhillsrancher and my superb subscribers on Spotify. If you don't like listening to ads, you can listen ad-free on Spotify for just $5 a month. You can show your support and help me keep cranking out episodes every week just for you. Go check out patreon.com slash redhillsrancher or click the links in the show notes. This is the last week to let me know what you think about the podcast by filling out my listener survey. I've got a lot of great responses and feedback at www.redhillsrancher.com slash survey, but I still want to hear from you. Either click the link in the description or head to redhillsrancher.com slash survey. And if you don't like surveys, just send me an email at redhillsrancher.com and let me know what's on your mind. If you've already filled it out, thank you so much for your input. Last week, I mentioned my Discord server, and some of you joined this week. We're glad to have you. If Discord isn't your thing, check out our private Facebook group, The Ranching Reboot Paddock. Discord users get the most insider access, and the Facebook group is a very close second. It's The Ranching Reboot Paddock on Facebook. Come see us. My guest today is a fellow Kansan from the wetter eastern part of the state. Craig Guffey is a first-generation rancher with about 40 years of experience. Craig and his family operate Swearingen Angus, and this week on the podcast, the conversation goes from the economics of digging ponds to the benefits of rural water systems. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in sustainable cattle ranching. Well, good morning, Craig. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great. You know, I'm really enjoying the nice, cool fall weather that we've been having. Um, how are things up there on the other end of the state? Uh, good. I'm enjoying the cooler weather, too. A little dry in our part of the world this fall, but um, but all's good. Down here in the Red Hills, I can't really complain a whole lot about... I can't really complain about a whole lot that since the since the end of may really i mean we've had uh-huh. pretty good rains we've had fairly mild temperatures hasn't really been that windy the grass looks really good but and you get north of the arkansas river you get east of 35 or west of dodge yeah north of the arkansas river and just it just seems like it's just super super dry is it like that where you are yes and we've had uh we've had plenty of grass which is kind of normal for us, depending, you know, it doesn't really change a lot if it's dry or wet um, for our, because of our diversity, but pond water is really an issue for us. So we're having to uh, have some alternative, you know, sources of water uh, this fall to keep things, you know, to keep us able to graze more consistently. So. Where's your, just tell us all where your operation's at. So, yeah, um, we are Swearingen Ranches, and we're north, five miles north of the metropolis of Lawrence, Kansas, and we're about 30 minutes straight east of, or west of Kansas City. Would you call that the Flint Hills? No. Uh, the Flint Hills is just west of Topeka is kind of where it starts. Although we, we uh, own and manage the largest contiguous piece of warm season grass um, 
in our in northeast Kansas. So we do have a lot of uh, warm season grasses. We just don't, um, you know, we're just not part of that. We have more of a limestone base uh, instead of a flint rock base. And so uh, that's kind of a big difference. Okay. I, I know in the Flint Hills, like at least on uh, Josh and Gwen Hoy's place, I've been on it enough. You know, it, they, it sounds like it's a pretty similar place or similar operation. Most of your stock water is, is from small ponds and runoff fed ponds. Yes. And you really can't, it's difficult to, to put any water lines in the ground because of the rock situation. It, it is, yes. And so although we're doing some of that work little by little, um, you know, from rural water, um, everybody's been on rural water since I was a kid. They took away our, our you know, well um, drilling for the most part. And most of the wells were like put in in the 1800s. They were hand dug and laid with limestone and just really didn't hold water very well. So it's been a really positive thing for us to have, uh, you know, rural water systems come through. So are you getting rural to just make sure I've got this correct? You're hooking up uh, stock water, livestock watering systems on your rural water system? Yes. Okay. Is I know in some places that can be fairly expensive and in some places it can be a pretty good option how like what what's the cost like for that so typically um it's going to be most of them are going to be about 150 dollars a month for a rural water bill when you've got livestock on a on a meter as well um or adds about 150 dollars a month and the interesting thing we've found is that you know, if cattle are given an option, they'll walk from the pond and won't drink out of the pond. They'll come to the rural water, the fresh water supply. And you can always measure um, more fertility, uh, better weaning weights. All those things occur with fresh water. Ponds are very expensive to maintain. They silt in quickly, even even with our um, diverse forage and as thick as it is, they still silt in very quickly. And so it's about 15 to $20,000 to dig a pond out. Um, you know, so if you look at that economic value compared to rural water and what you pay monthly, it, you know, it really is a better option. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it, if you can, drilling wells and putting your own piping in starts to make a lot of sense when you look at it from a longevity purpose of, yes, what's this dam going to be in 20 years, in 40 years, yes. or in 60 years? Um, so when my dad took over this ranch in the mid 80s, uh -huh. it barely had any water in it. There was there was like a water well at the house or a couple of windmills and a couple of dry ponds. And there wasn't even really a Creek. And, you know, through the course of cutting all the cedar trees and, you know, he came in and got some cost your money to build some ponds. And I think we have, but I think we have 14 ponds on the ranch uh, between mm -hmm. like pit type ponds, which are dug, you know, mm -hmm. dug out at a spring and mm -hmm. you know, dam type ponds. And of those dam and of the dams that he's built, 
and we've had some really long in-depth conversations about this. Mm-hmm. He said that there's maybe only two or three of the dams that he ever would have built. Yes. And most of those would be primarily for access, not as a primary water source. Because the north end of the ranch is, it's pretty rough. And if it wasn't for some of those big dams, we wouldn't be able to get across. Yes. Yeah, we, we've we probably got, um, I think we've counted up one time, we've got somewhere around 23 ponds on 1,200 acres. So it, you know, in some cases, they put three ponds right on top of each other to try to slow, you know, erosion processes and, and water leaving. And, you know, we have very steep topography. The hills are very steep. And like I said, there's tons of limestone um, ledges and rocks just lay in the ground and you got to grow grass on top of them the best you can. And so it's, it is, I mean, uh, that's the, really to me one of the interesting things about kansas is that it is completely diverse from one end to the other and it it offers a tremendous amount of challenge um but it is great cow country when you can get them to adapt to it come on we can't tell people that kansas isn't flat because nobody will believe us (laughs) you're showing a hill right behind you (laughs) yeah nobody can see it (laughs) Kansas is not flat if you get off of 35 and off of I-70. Kansas is not flat, guys. Right. Yeah, it, it is not. And that's the biggest thing I hear when people come to our ranch from other parts of the country or the world and say, um, wow, we didn't think it would be like this at all. And I I just laugh and say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very challenging topography. Okay. So let's... Uh... Moving on, let's talk about Swearingen Angus and, and the cows. How long have you been there north of Lawrence? So we are a little unique in that we are a first generation again ranch, and we have built our ranch from nothing um, over the last 40, a little over 40 years. And so, um, yeah, uh, it's a a rapidly growing area for, you know, for urban sprawl. Um, we're being encroached on very rapidly. You know, land prices have skyrocketed in the last three to four years predominantly, which from the land we own, from that perspective, it's good. The land we would like to buy, yet it's not good. So, you know, it creates those kinds of challenges, but we, um, so we've created um, our own operation there from, like I said, from nothing. Um, And, and then I also spent about 20 years in the deep South raising cattle. Um, And from that perspective, I learned a tremendous about amount about low quality forage and genetic, um, true genetic lines that actually can sustain in low quality forage. So. Okay. Can you go on, go on about that, about low quality, low quality forage and and good genetics? Sure. So, you know, I, I was, uh, when you build a ranch from nothing, you, you know, you spend a lot of years 
um, understanding the bottom line uh, and you either allow it to eat you or you learn to work with it. And so from that perspective, we were in search of cattle that could actually um, adapt, sustain, and create a profit on forage alone. Because we we were not farmers, we were just cattle people. And um, so we live in a in an area in northeast Kansas. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of corn and soybeans uh, in that area. And so there is a lot of farmers. There's a lot of people who have cattle and uh, row cropping operations. We just happen to just be ranchers. So that's a little more unique as well. So as we develop cattle, they not only had to work for us on forage 100%, but they also had to create an economic value for our customer who was, you know, feeding cattle more, um, doing those kinds of things as well. So when we started looking at what would sustain us, we started looking, you know, uh, very hard at what cow lines were uh, the most resilient. And then with that, what sires were the most resilient as well. And, and at about 25 to 30 years, we kind of had a really short list because of what didn't leave um, over the years. And um, we stayed very focused to finding those individuals um, or lines and uh, then propagating those and culling very hard on cattle that simply couldn't do it required more of our our attention, inputs, more feed, more anything. Th those cattle simply were were sorted out. Perfect. And the same way in Alabama, I did the same things there. You know, I tried to bring a lot of cattle from the north down there. They simply had no ability to excel um, on super low quality forage like bahia grass, um, fire ants, and um, yellow sand. <laughs> so, you, you, like I said, you learn a lot. Yeah, for sure. What compared to, so you said you spent uh, 20 years in Alabama, compared right. to where you're at now up there north of Lawrence, do you think the grass is that much better? where you're at now, like year round, like year round from a whole year round perspective. Yeah. That I think what's really better. I mean, what we saw when I brought, when I, so in 2010, my family said, you know, we were doing some things together annually. Anyway, I was bringing my bulls up to Kansas. We were marketing through them, them through the family sale. Um, and finally, in 2010, my brother-in-law and my sister said, just bring your cows and come home. And so when I did that, I uh, we unloaded the cattle into, you know, the, the grassland there. And they went to eating the, the switchgrass. And you would see a patch of switchgrass that was absolutely just mowed off. And that was the Alabama cows. So their epigenetics said this is the closest thing to what our our grass was that we were used to in Alabama. So Bahia grass and Bermuda grass um, were predominantly the perennial grasses that were, you know, available. So 
you know, in, in a few years, you started seeing less of that happening and the cattle were transitioning, you know, to the higher quality forages, but they simply didn't know what they were. Um, and so that was a very interesting thing we saw. So what is, I think, dramatically different um, to maybe answer your question a little more thoroughly, and that is the soil is completely different. Um, and certainly the protein level at during the height of the growing season is completely different. And at times we can have such high protein levels that we actually create a nitrate toxicity within the cattle. So we have to watch that as well. Okay. I'm kind of curious on how your Alabama cows integrated into the herd. If they kind of, if they stayed separate from, from the, the cows that were on the ranch or if they started to integrate, um, cause I've noticed some different behavior when I bring in a set of customer cattle, you know, to, to blend in with mine that have been on the ranch all winter that, you know, been on a slightly different program. The first part of the year my group will, will stick together pretty, pretty well. And they'll be moving around the pasture and then the customer cattle will be kind of, you know, they'll be in their own group. Then about midsummer, I'll start to notice the groups blend a little bit. And maybe there's kind of a third outlier group that's, that's made up of some of both. And then kind of toward, then we get down to this part of the year where we're looking at, you know, getting everything shipped out. Everything's kind of there isn't a knot of mine. There isn't a wad of his. They're just kind of all in in one big pile. Have you, did you notice anything like that when your Alabama cows were trying to integrate into the herd? Yes, for sure. Um, you know, because they've already established, you know, the hierarchy within those groups. And so, you know, it took a little bit of time for the hierarchies to get you know, uh, figured out within the groups. We did some, which is kind of what we, how we manage our cows is, you know, we did some sorting, like the Alabama cows didn't all stay together. We, we sort on our ranch more so based on breeding groups, um, which has more to do with the age of the cows than probably anything else. Um, because most of our cow age groups are going to be a certain sire group. And so then I'm taking that sire group and mating it to a certain sire to balance our genetic value. So that's kind of how that works. So yes, within, then within each group, we saw, you know, the hierarchies changing and, and, uh, certainly, uh, the grazing patterns change the, you know, the, I had cows from Alabama that had never been, you know, down there, a big pasture was 40 acres. So you put them on, you know, a quarter, a half section, and they're just like, holy crap, this is huge and I can hide. So then some of the cows, you know, that didn't want to participate then because they felt like they had, you know, you know, we're back on the big range and this is amazing. And so, but when it got to be winter, they were running out of the, you know, the, the brush and right there beside the truck ready for some hay, you know? (laughs) So they figured that out pretty quickly too. It's funny how fast they'll figure out what a feed truck is, isn't it? Mm. Very, very much. Yes. 
but we we also culled based on that you know if a cow if if we had cows that would see the feed truck going by on the road and they'd start congregating at the gate at the road then we would take those numbers down and those cows we would sort out pretty quickly too we we didn't want that thought process to uh you know to to stay in the herd we wanted you out grazing whether there was a foot of snow on the ground or whether you know it was uh may and lush and green i got a funny story to tell you sure so yesterday morning i was i was just waking up sun was just coming up my phone starts ringing it's the sheriff's office you know how this one goes, right? Yes, yes, we have those too. <laughs> Good morning, sir. There are cows on the highway about two miles east of your dad's place. Might they be yours? And I said, well, yes, that's definitely a possibility because I have cattle right there on the north side of the highway. I'll put on my pants and be there immediately. Now, it's it's about eight miles from my house to ranch headquarters and it'd be another two miles down the road to where this was. So I had to make it 10 miles. I jumped in my feed truck. Mm -hmm. Now my feed truck, it's a, it's an older Dodge diesel with a manual. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is, is two of my neighbors drive basically the same kind of pickup, right? They drive a Dodge with a straight pipe and a manual transmission. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cows around in this part of the world that, that know that. Dodge and a manual. Yes. They like to go stand in the corner by a gate. <laughs> Cause they know you're coming. Right. So, you know, I'm jamming gears. I'm flying out there running, you know, maybe a little bit faster than I should have for that early in the morning. And I'm just running down, you know, and you know how it is when you're on the way, when you're responding to one of those things, you're running through your head, like, okay, where could they have possibly come out of? Where's the most likely place for them to find a hole or, you know, break the fence or get out? How am I going to get them back in? What's right. You know, how much of a wreck am I going to have? You know, how bad is this going to screw up the whole day? So then I pop over the hill, right? Mm -hmm. And I can see my cows still standing in the pasture. There's a bunch of them kind of standing in the corners, kind of some scattered off to the north in the grass. I'm thinking, well, this isn't, they're not all on the road. So that's a bonus. And then I pop over the next little rise and I see the cows and they're all black cows lining both ditches for about a quarter mile. <laughs> and I roll up on one and it's not mine. <laughs> yeah. It was the neighbors on the South side of the road. So of course I called him immediately and let him come down. Um, so I parked alongside the road. Parked alongside the road on the west side, put my hazard flashers on, called dispatch back. And, you know, they had a deputy that was about ready to hit the east side. So, you know, we could at least warn traffic until my neighbor shows up. So my neighbor shows up in his feed wagon. <laughs> Sound just like mine. All my cows come running up to the fence. And I'm thinking, I'm, you know, because I've been sitting there and he drives up and I'm, you know, my cows hear all that racket and they're like, oh, maybe we're getting some food. So they start coming up. And right. We make a plan anyway, about 10 minutes later, you know, he, he had his back in the pasture, but uh, yeah, I just, just wanted to share that one real quick. Was... Yeah, no, we have the same sounding truck. And so our cows know, but we've kind of trained them to one more sound. If they don't hear the horn honk, 
then that means we don't want you. <laughs> I and I okay, and I do something really similar when I'm when I want to move them. Yeah. So I I've been operating out of a side by side for years, and That's sometimes good. I'll I'll actually put a siren in it. Sometimes mm -hmm. I won't. I haven't put a siren in my new rig. I just I got one of those Mahindra Roxers. Have you seen okay. those? No. Well, they look like they're built really tough, but they don't ride very good. <laughs> so I got you. If you're used to a nice smooth riding Ranger, you might not like one. Yeah. I... Anyway, anyway, I can go out and I can set on the top of a hill, and mm -hmm. if I just sit there, they don't they don't do anything. I can mm -hmm. go sit in a corner by a gate. I just sit there. They don't do anything. Mm -hmm. As soon as I honk that horn, yep, they all start drifting in. Yep. And people say, oh, well, we know you got a bucket of cake. Um, I haven't carried anything with me all <laughs> summer. Like since July, I haven't carried anything with me at all. It's right. just got them trained. Right. Yes. And, you know, just like this time of the year, as the grass starts going the other direction and, you know, they just know they know that it's closer to when we might get a little alfalfa um, or something like that. And and the other thing is we brought them in recently and, you know, did our pre weaning vaccination. And so now they're a lot more relaxed when they see you out running around because they think, oh, it's, all, you know, we've already been in, so we're going to be okay kind of thing. So. Do you think they, do you think that there's some cattle that get, that have too many negative experiences in the corrals and they just don't want to go back? Yes, for sure. We create, we humans create all the negative in a cow's mind. And so you know it's all on us um that's what we find uh, you know i've bought sale barn cows that were wild as a march hare and in two years they're right there with our cows doing everything our cows do and um you know but but again i've reprogrammed them to understand that it that life isn't like that thank I think what Bob Kinford would say is when you try to completely de-stress that animal, that animal would start to express its natural behaviors way more. Yes. Yes, for sure. Now, I, was, I was just thinking back, you know, the discussion about cattle and sounds and, you know, we were talking about sounds of the feed pickup and you said that, you know, you have yours more, more trained to only respond to the sound of a horn. And I think about like, like the, the trip hoppers, you know, everybody likes their trip hoppers they are super popular. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. If you like them, fine. Mm -hmm. um, when we fed and what we have around here is we have some old bar six cake feeders and they're made, okay. they're made just yeah. down the road. And what, what my dad really liked about the bar six feeders is they were a double reduction, so the auger in the bottom ran real slow, mm -hmm. and they were about the quietest thing he could find. Gotcha. And I think, you know, those trip hoppers just make so much noise. You know, that slap, that, right. that slam and bang. Cows right. can hear that for way farther than we can. And that's, yes. 
it's like, hey, your crack dealer's here. Come get your fix. That's that's what that sound is. And they'll run and leave their calf half a mile across the pasture to come get to come see you. And I've never really liked that behavior. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know how to correct it. I mean, because it's like we're taking something to them that they really, really want. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it's not fair to call cake crack, but right. to them, but it's to a, them it is. Yeah, to them yeah. it's extremely addictive. Yes, and I just, I don't. I I try to be careful about how I use those things because I'm in. I have an addictive personality. Like it's <laughs> taken me a lot of years to get rid of my nicotine addiction. <laughs> I will never get rid of my caffeine addiction. <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably with you on that one. <laughs> if the worst thing I got is a caffeine addiction, I will probably, we'll, we, I think we can roll with that. Right. So it, it, just thinking about that and then, and in that context, it's like that's another negative behavior that human beings are responsible for putting into cattle. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so much conversation today about docility and you know i've said over and over um on social media that you know people the majority of it comes from their experience with us and you know it's probably time that we look at ourselves a little more thoroughly if we have our if we're having more issues with our cattle is docility epigenetic some of it, um, but I'm finding that more docility issues are related to toxicities that are created within cattle today because of more byproduct feed sources. Um, I can get like super technical here, but but the basis is is that as we have moved as an industry to buy more byproduct feeds has created a difference in the way um, it is synthesized through the animal's body and it's creating more anxiety within the cattle and the anxiety is then expressed when we humans do something um, they don't like more rapidly. Now, are you talking about things like distillers grains wet beet pulp thing, yes. things like that all of it and and even mineral too um it's high in a lot of the base minerals today are high in um heavy metals um those create uh, inflammation around the cell um so then their hormone receptors are not working properly and there it just creates more anxiety and the same thing is happening in humans today too where there's more anxiety um our food that we eat is is a big part of what creates that we are what we eat and we are what our food eats too yes and we are what our food eats right for for a second there you're starting to sound like um Oh, gosh, Will Winter and uh, Bob Kinford and a couple other guys. <laughs> right. Well, but, I think when you're in this a, li- a lifetime, there are many things that become um, evident. 
And especially as, you know, over the years, as the industry changes, we we went from, you know, as young men seeing things clearly um, because everything was a lot more simple back then. And, and we allowed it to be more simple and the cattle just functioned from the simplicity. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm very, I'm, I'm trying to work through that. Um, I, I can agree with that. Like this, but we as humans have a tendency to add layers of needless complexity to systems. Absolutely. Right. That, that, that's kind of where, where I got from that. Um, so maybe, maybe right now is a good time to just take a step back. He said that you guys are first generation ranchers. Yes. And you've been there about like, you've been there north of Lawrence about 40 years, but you also spent some time in the deep South. Tell me about, I want to hear about what your motivations were to start ranching. And it sounds like that would have been in the early to mid eighties. Yes. What was the motivation to start ranching right then? epigenetics <laughs> epigenetics within us okay um, we were from my um i ranch it, it's a family operation and to me something that's kind of interesting is my older sister and and her husband have created a farming ranching operation on their own as well along you know with my youngest sister and her husband and i ranch together and so we've all created our own things uh, since the early 1980s. And I, I guess it was, you know, just in our, our epigenetic makeup that we were supposed to do this. And it's also why we look at everything completely different than most people. And I have a, a Facebook group that, you know, I visit with pretty regularly that, um, you know, I'll say something completely off the wall to most of them. But as we visit about it, you know, then they start realizing that, oh, I, I can understand why you think that way. And so a lot of my processes are with people are about opening your mind up to the possibilities that it may not be what we first visualize that is the issue and most of the time it isn't it's there's a deeper underlying issue that's creating you know these issues that we're having within our operation the problem is not that you have a sore foot the problem is what's causing the sore foot absolutely learning how to identify an actual problem instead of just treating a solution and i feel like yes and just treating the symptom is what our society is based on because there's absolutely just, there's lots yeah. of profit in treatment and not a lot of profit in cure or prevention. Right. So so then we're controlled by that part of our, you know, the um, the organizations that control the money within our industry are the ones that control our thought process too. You know, like what you're saying, you have a sore foot, so I'm going to give it antibiotic, not what is the underlying cause that's creating the sore foot? We need to figure that out so we can eliminate the sore feet if that's possible. 
is it genetic or is it biological? Is it environmental? What is the underlying cause? Yeah, and maybe it's a mineral deficiency. Like, I've, I've probably said this a half a dozen times. My theory is pink eye is an iodine deficiency. Okay. So... so one of the one of the old cowboys that worked for my dad back in the early nineties, he came off the stump smith, which is the, the guy I was telling you about that had cows on the highway. Yes. That's he's on what okay. used to be the stump smith. So okay. Ivan came over from the stump smith when when it broke up and sold. And when for several years, dad and Ivan ran yearlings together and they're on the ranch. And when they would get in to having pink eye problems. Ivan would just go out there, rope and choke it down. And he carried uh, Morton table salt, iodized table salt with him in his saddlebags. Mm-hmm. He'd get that calf down and he'd just go down there and he'd pour a bunch of salt in its eye, rub it around and hold it closed for a few seconds, then just let him up. Mm-hmm. And he said that it worked most of the time. Yes. So... And I and I watched it work. Right. You know, and then we listen to guys like, uh, you know, Will Winter and Bob Kenford and Steve Campbell. I'll talk about a lot of the same stuff, like, you know, what you were saying with toxicity and some of the feed products, toxicity in the minerals, toxicity, you know, unintended toxicity in the minerals that we're getting that are overprocessed, maybe from China, maybe not, but it can cause, you know, problems like, um, imbalances, imbalances. I like that. Um, another one I've heard of is grass tetany, uh-huh. which to me, that's magnesium deficiency. So how do you correct grass tetany? You feed a high mag mineral. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... go ahead. Yeah, so these are all super interesting things, and these are things that we've come to the core of what creates and causes them. And so um, we live in pink eye, uh, the, the hub of all pink eye. And there is years where every animal will get pink eye. And so we had to figure out what is the cause. The industry certainly isn't going to do it because there's too much money generated from treating pink eye. Um, So one of the things I learned in Alabama was the only time I got pink eye was after a tropical storm. Okay. So it blew in, you know, in the storm, and you'd get a few animals with pink eye. So that also said to me that it can travel on dust particles, the the virus, bacteria, whatever. You know, we're not really sure. We call it a virus, but there's also in, you know, the, the idea that it's there's some bacterial issues there as well. So we continued to look at it. And so in the last year, basically, we've changed our pink eye problem with one thing. Understanding that the majority of pink eye comes from too much protein within the diet. So we changed the how they synthesize that by giving by taking away the toxicity, the heavy metal toxicities within the mineral, the traditional mineral and changing that. And so 
when we moved to the mineral we used as kids, which was, you know, basic salt from the salt mines in Kansas. And then we were told, you know, that as we, you know, got into our 20s, we were told you you can't use, you know, just base mineral. We called it a perfect 36, a 12, 12, 12. And we'd mix it half with salt. And we got along great. We had hardly any pink eye. And at that point, you know, like the family that I was helping um, as a kid had Hereford cattle. And we grazed those in the Flint Hills during the summer. And we hardly had any pink eye ever. Then we transitioned to, well... You know, the industry says we need to use better mineral. We need to use chelates. We need to use all these things. And so as we transition to those things that make us a better cow man, we have developed more issues. And finally, we just got to a point where we had to say, look, we didn't as young men, we didn't have all these issues. And we're old enough to have remembered that and seen that. And so we kept going back to why, what was different. So we went back to that and it's completely changed everything. I, I had to write that down. The quote, things that make us a better cow, man. Yes. It seems like that over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of things that make us a better cow, man, like LA 200, long right. range, Ivamac. Right. <laughs> right. And what you see, you know, now that you like you mentioned LA 200, you know, we used to be able to take a pink eye and give them some LA 200. And in just a few days, they you could see the pink eye, you know, reversing and, and they're healing up. But it got to a point where no antibiotics were working on things like pink eye or foot rot. So it's like, what what else is there? What else is creating the underlying issue? Because it's clearly not responsive to antibiotic anymore. And the other side of that coin is, are we are we helping nature breed superbugs that are resistant to all of our antibiotics and all of our treatments? Sure. Which, you know, that could be kind of dangerous. Like that's. That's scary. That's really scary to think about that. Yes. So, so nothing was working, Brian, nothing, even wormers weren't working anymore. Okay. And so we had to completely back up, go back to the fundamentals of everything and from that point forward, we're seeing dramatic changes. So we spent, you know, 25, 30 years isolating genetic value. So we knew that wasn't the issue. And so um, after that, then we had to start looking at the truths of what the environment was doing. And we've been regenerative for 40 plus years because we simply couldn't afford not to be. It, it was always economically driven. So now 40 plus years in, and we have lots of people today saying, you need to 
And so we're back to just like the people saying, you need to use this mineral or you need to use this type of feed or you need. And anytime somebody approaches me and says, you need to, you know, I, I put on the brakes and I start backing up because I've heard that too many times. And it always ended in it cost us too much. So when we jumped out of the cattle industry box and we stand up on top of it and look down at everybody running around in it, trying to figure out how to create or control all these issues too, everything just becomes clear. Yep. So you made a comment that, you know, you guys have been regenerative for 40 years. What does yeah. that look like for you? What What is regenerative agriculture and what is regenerative grazing to you? So to us, um, you know, 40 years in, we've created a higher quality forage. And like I said, in some instances, it is too high quality and we can have some nitrate issues within cattle. So we have to uh, transition them a little differently. We have to blend some of the grazing strategies differently. Um, we've went to doing more resting of the of the land during the growing season, which means we spread the cattle out during the growing season and we intensify the grazing from now till spring. Because it's about growing volume if you're going to graze year round. And so what we then saw was as we intensified, the cattle don't want to stand under a tree during the fall, winter months. They want to be out grazing. And so you're, again, it's much easier to control where they're grazing, how they're grazing, and, you know, the manure than it is in the summertime when they're standing out on a hill in 110 degrees melting down. But that's fair. So just, I want to make sure I've got what you're saying correct. So you're saying in the summertime, you have them a little more scattered out. Yes. At a lower stock density, less frequent moves. Yes. Okay. And in the wintertime and the, when the grass is dormant, you tighten them back up and you run them a little harder, move them a little more often. Yes. Okay. So that has created, you know, in the end, a lot of the, a lot of people have thought, well, you're going to, you know, in the winter time, you're not going to leave enough cover back on that for the winter. And that's certainly not what we see either. There's plenty of cover year round. Um, but we have, our diversity is just immense. And we even now have a growing population of Bermuda grass. Okay. And we're a hundred plus miles north of Bermuda line. So why do we have this Bermuda grass? Again, I ask why all the time. Why do we have this Bermuda grass? Because we have high levels of nitrogen in our soil so we created that through the diversity we have tremendous amounts of legumes during the growing season so that's the reason we were having such pink eye issues 
Okay. I mean, that definitely tracks. Yes. So then once we changed the mineral, the pink eye went to almost nothing. We foot issues went to nothing. The wormer went to working again because we reduced inflammation within their body. Okay. I, you're going to have to tell me what you switched from and what you switched to. <laughs> so we switched from, um, if you don't want to throw a brand name under the bus, that's fine. No, I won't. Uh, we switched from a traditional table blended mineral that's available at any feed store today. We switched from that to, uh, basically, um, salt sea salt and um, a couple other products like bicarbonate of soda um and what we we also changed the um and some you know clay in there to pull the toxins out of the cattle and then we remineralized them with the sea salt and it changed everything dramatically Sea salt, sodium bicarbon, clay. That uh, yes. that sounds like something Will Winter or Steve Campbell might say. <laughs> yes, they said it a little differently. I've spent um, a year with running trials on multiple groups of cattle, multiple ages of cattle, to understand where the levels were needed to be, how to feed it, how to manage it. Um, uh, and it's, um, uh, so I've got a lot of that figured out and it's, it's, uh, different than what a lot of those will tell you, uh, for our environment. Um, but it's been an amazing thing. And several people o- over the last couple of years kept telling me I needed to do that, but I'm not, you know, we're the guys that we, like I said, when you start coming at me saying you need to. I start backing up because again, I've heard that too many times and it never ended good. So I always observe for a long time before we do something. That's fair. So like the clay, help the clay, which would be a lot of times like a... Uh... Bentonite. Thank you. I was drawing a blank. <laughs> sure. No, no problem. That helps pull toxicity out. Yes. Sodium bicarbonate helps regulate pH. Yes. And the sea salt brings back all the minerals in a bioavailable form that have been tied up in chelated minerals. And like I said, when we were in our, in the 1970s, that's what everyone used. Especially in Kansas, you know, because that was what was available. We had, you know, we had this, the mines there. Yeah. There's Hutch, there's Canopolis, and there's yes. probably a couple other ones that I don't know of. Yes. But, but that was what was available to us. It was close. It was readily available and it was cheap. And that's what we all used. And then it seems like in the late eighties, early nineties, the industry folks were like, Oh, well, you got to have this higher quality mineral package. Like, like you're talking about earlier. Yes. And somewhere along the line, we also got convinced that we needed to be buying salt from Cargill. 
Yes. That was evaporated salt that didn't have any of those impurities in it that was all pure white. Right. And, oh, well, we can put it in the block for you. Make it right. easier to handle. That those pure white salt blocks don't have everything in it. I mean, no. okay, are they salt? Yes, but that's all they are. They don't have... Yeah, they're just in ACL. Yeah, they don't have all the trace minerals. No. And that's what salt is for. Like, it's... The, the sodium chloride is a vehicle to bring the rest of the minerals to the body. That, yes. That's what I'm understanding. But we also need to understand that cattle need a certain, uh, you know, they needed more salt too, just salt, than what traditional mineral was, e even though traditional mineral is a decent amount of salt, but it still wasn't evidently bioavailable enough to cattle because we didn't see as much um you know, the cattle just weren't as full and, um, you know, uh, bright and um, aware, you know, just like back to the toxicity and the anxiety, you know, you could drive up to cattle and one day they might just all run off and the next day they'd stand there and look at you, you know, whereas today when we I drive up to a group of cattle, they're just standing there grazing. They'll look at me and they'll go back to grazing. We bring them in to work them. Everything is completely different. They're, they're perspective. They're brighter. They're fuller. Everything is completely different. And, and in my, you know, in our genetic makeup, we have intensely line bred emulation EXT. So many people would think, our cattle would be very high, you know, uh, strong kind of cattle. And they're absolutely not. You have to, when you're working them, you absolutely have to push them out of the way. But we took out the toxins that were creating the problem around the cell and wasn't allowing the, the hormone receptors to work properly around the cell and that created all kinds of issues. And then, then what do you have? You have cattle that don't breed up properly. Um, they don't raise a calf properly. They forget their job. You know, it, all those things affect them mentally. Yeah. And the less stress that we can have on that animal, the better she's going to perform. Yes. And so back to moving these cattle during the hot growing season, to to us, that was creating too much stress on the cows. And I don't like cows worrying about where their food's coming from. Because they will. And so, you know, if they're standing at a gate every morning needing to move, she's not grazing somewhere. And so when we moved our grazing to the fall and winter, you know, what we get back in Northeast Kansas is now from now forward until, you know, our super hard frost is fescue grows again. And once you have a frost, fescue turns to, you know, super high carbohydrate. Okay. So you're, they're eating the carbohydrate with the dry native grass and balancing their diet. I've got a haul in alfalfa. I don't have any fescue. <laughs> yes. So that's the biggest difference between us and 
like the Flint Hills or where you're at is, you know, there's not much fescue in both of those parts of the country. And it's fantastic stuff if you manage it properly. But again, what we've found is the diversity within plant populations is really the key to the best balanced grazing year round. And we have more species of things growing continually in nine months than the average person. And that to us was what created the, you know, the true value of our forage. Having something green and growing. All the time. Yeah, it's. Yes. One species will mature and then there's another two or three species coming on. And some of them are annual, some of them are perennial. It just, it doesn't matter. And I've always operated with the theory that everything in the pasture is edible at some time during the year for the, for the cattle. Yes, it, it, it is. So I have uh, figured that out. Old world blue stem. Are you familiar with any of it? Mm -hmm. Do you have any? Yes. I'm starting I'm starting to get some. Are you? And it's I'm starting to get some decently large patches on the south side of the ranch. Mm-hmm. And so in I think it was late 2020, I had a friend call me from just about an hour south and he's like, Hey, I'm out of grass. I said, Well, good news. I've got a little bit extra. And they said, mm -hmm. Can I bring you some cows? Like, yeah, no problem. Well, I, and I've known this gentleman for, for quite a while now, his, his ranch down in Oklahoma is almost all old world blue stem, right? Between yellow and Caucasian, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and uh, I think some spar. Mm -hmm. So we brought his cows up and put them on the South end of the ranch. That is maybe I've got a couple of paddocks that maybe have 20% old world blue stem in them the rest right. are pretty much you know they're pretty good paddocks with you know good native grass mm -hmm. the summer they don't hardly touch it the spring they don't touch it september october november they mow it to the ground mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know why yep it's the best nutritive value to them at that point or they wouldn't do it you know and how many seasons did it take them to figure that out Right. And learn that and spread that knowledge through the whole, whole herd. Like, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the cows you brought from Alabama and, and how they mm -hmm. integrated into the Kansas herd and eating differences. It's like there's something that they learn epigenetically on how to eat and what plants are good and what plants are not. So can you can you speak to that um, about your observations over the last 30, 40 years of how cattle will teach each other to eat things or how they will select or ignore things based on their epigenetics and their upbringing. Sure. So a lot of it is done, you know, by mimicking their dam. Uh, but it also, there is that palate is created through epigenetics um, for generations. You know, I, I think we don't fully, most of us don't fully understand the the depth of epigenetics and that it is completely generational. Um, you know, it, it just is amazing to me 
Um, for example, you know, there were cattle that I brought from Alabama that just, you know, they just couldn't make it. They couldn't find the resources, even in the diverse population we have. It's the same thing when I bring cattle out of the north. You know, they just can't make it here. There's multiple reasons why, but they just don't. And, uh, you know, there's you just have to have the epigenetic diversity bred into you in order to be able to move from from environment to environment. And I get asked that question quite a bit from people. It's like, do you believe cattle can work in multiple environments? And I said, yes, I absolutely believe it can. It, it's it's possible. But I said to the average person, no, it isn't possible. Um, and the reason I say that is because we have proof that there are genetic lines, you know, in breeds that dominate the breed. And, you know, for example, QAS Traveler and EXT are the top two bulls in the entire Angus breed for genomic influence. And they both are a negative scrotal bulls, according to EPDs. And yet, here they are dominating the, the entire breed uh, for genomic saturation by 17%. You're a little over my head. Can you explain that like you'd explain it to a five-year-old? Uh, sure. <laughs> so one of the things we did, Brian, or I did within selecting genomic lines that could sustain long-term in multiple environments on forage was I went to looking and correlating. This is what I've spent my life doing is correlating those genetic lines back to true doability and profit on the ranch. So once I I figured out there's basically five sire lines that have done that. And then a few years later, Angus actually printed a list of cattle, the top 30 animals in the entire Angus genome that make up 50% of the Angus genome. So only 30 animals make it 50% of all Angus cattle. Okay. So with that in mind, that means those were the animals that no matter the environment or the management or the forage or the feed, they excelled. Okay. That makes sense. And brought the breed forward. And so those are also the, the bloodlines that everybody always goes back to when they make a mess and they their cattle don't work and they have to fix them is we go back to these handful of cattle and we fix them. So what we've done differently is we've brought that forward in the last 40 years and line bred those values of those animals forward to a point where now our genomic value is super, super consistent and our phenotype is as well. So we've, we've went about it a little differently from because we were trying to get rid of the inconsistencies and make uh, 
you know, the dollar value of each animal more consistent at the end of the year. Okay. Have you, how have you avoided any, any wrecks with, with all the lion breeding for 40 years? Cause it seems like just me not, not knowing anything from a hole in the ground. It just seems like 40 years, you're going to be, you know, several generations deep reinforcing those genetics. You're not worried about any, any inbreeding, which I mean, which is the negative side of line breeding, any bad traits popping up or have you seen them and deal with them? No. Um, so here's something that's a little unique in the way we've line bred. We, we didn't go about it from one sire line as most people do when they, when they discover a sire line that they, that they, that has worked super well for them. And they decide we're going to create a line of cattle that are line bred out of a lot, out of a sire line. And I went about it from understanding uh, first correlating that there's five sire lines that are strong enough to sustain forward movement. Then without getting like maybe super complex i i also went on to understand that three quarters of all dna comes from the dam in every animal okay so if we were to dissect a cell in every living animal including humans three quarters of all the dna in every cell comes out of the dam so we had to create cows that were super consistent because they were pulling genetically and they controlled the epigenetics forward as well. So once you do that, then we, uh, we take the most consistent prolific cows and line breed those back through the sires, but it's five lines. And so we don't ever get like I may have a cow that's 30% emulation, but then I outcross her with our Rito bull and then we're back to 3%. But the Rito bull was probably in the third generation back behind her, but it's still only at three to 7%. So I don't, even though I'm line breeding, I'm still outcrossing within my five sire line pool and I keep in line breeding the, the most prominent cows within our population forward too. And that keeps everything uh, tight, but you don't have the depressions. And if we ever see a depression, then we cull that piece of the puzzle out. Um, and, and so that's the biggest difference. And, and there's a dairy you know, an old dairy guy had this system years and years ago too. So, you know, it wasn't like my own brainchild or anything. I did, you know, figure out that that's, it was possible to do that. How do you feel about EPDs? <laughs> um We've, we've used, we use them from the beginning and then, um, we haven't used, even looked at an EPD in 10 years. We quit using, uh, any association data six years ago. We moved to a straight DNA system 
um, that the, you know, the really cool thing about America is when a market starts shrinking and there's issues, there's usually another option that comes into the marketplace to help, you know, us have an option. So about the time that we were all figuring out that EPDs just didn't have any value to a breeding program, they are just 100% a marketing tool. And they created a race for the industry because that's what the average person does. We don't look at the values of a trait and say, this is positive or this is negative for me. We look at, I want the biggest, which created a race to the big. And then we went to selecting single traits. And then we went to creating cattle that just were unsustainable, um, except, you know, without tremendous amounts of feed, which again is, of course, cost prohibitive for the ranch. Makes great sense for everybody else, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And that's what, you know, is is kind of an interesting thing to me is, is that we have to understand that on the ranch, you know, if, if we're not sustainable, then the rest of the industry isn't either. Um, and for them, it's always been about the inefficiencies. That's where they made their money, the rest of the industry. But for us, we make our money with efficiencies on the ranch. And so it's a very different, uh, a very different perspective and a very different uh, economic side to the business. So, yes, the EPD is uh, has come and gone. Um we use a straight DNA system, uh, which is the basis of what EPDs are now. We just don't need the association pers association's perspective on what they think our cattle are or aren't. I, I We're not in a race with anyone except ourselves. All I need to know is what our cattle are or aren't. And then I can adjust what they need to be, what I'm seeing, what their inefficiencies or inabilities are. I can adjust that when I understand the truth of the genetic value within uh, the, the cattle and the sires that I'm utilizing back in them. Very cool. So one of the things I, one of the things I kind of wrote down earlier that you said was value for the cattleman yeah and just from the seat that i sit in and the observation post i have to look at the world it seems like a lot of things that work well for the cattleman are not what the feeders want and don't work for the feeders and what the feeders and the backgrounders and the what they want it it it's not working for the cattleman and trying to reconcile the two sides of the industry you know, if, if it wasn't for, you know, the guy with five head in his backyard, wasn't for the guys like me, wasn't for the guys like you, there'd be nobody in the cow-calf business. And if there's nobody in the cow-calf business, the feedlots and the backgrounders, are, they're not going to have a whole lot to do. Right. And it seems like all the things that the feeders and the packers and the backgrounders are telling the cow-calf guy to do are going to drive us out of business. 
absolutely. And so within the system I've been talking about, what we figured out, because we feed some of our own cattle commercially as well, because we wanted to see the truths of what they were within that system also. And so some of the guys who buy our cattle that are more grass-based in their end product, you know, don't really understand why I do these things. But what you understand is, is that every year creates some kind of new economic challenge. And if I put, if I pigeonhole my cattle into one end value, then I've limited my ability to create a, a positive economic flow for, for every year. Some years we sell our cattle through grass market. Other years we sell them into a traditional market. It depends on what's going to drive the most economics back to the ranch. So with that said, Brian, we, in the way we, we breed our cattle, what we found was when we stopped selecting traits, completely stopped selecting traits, we have culled our cows over the last 40 years for one reason. And that is, did you breed or not? And when you select for breeding, you find all other negative values. Because the number one thing that happens when anything is out of balance within a cow system, the number one thing that shuts down is reproduction. And if it's a toxin, then it, then it takes her 84 days to recreate oocytes for her to breed back after she's had too much toxin build up within her body, whether that's from pond water or feed or whatever. So then in the last, you know, so that leads us to where we are in the industry today in the lowest um, cow herd numbers in America. Because we kept selecting traits that created cows that couldn't breed. The cows ended up in the feedlots. The cows ended up being sold off. And many times we said it was because of drought or some type of issue. But the reality is, is our cows breed in drought. Our cows breed in good weather. Our cows breed because that's what they've been selected to do. And if they don't breed, as you said a little bit ago, then we there's no economic flow back to the ranch. So when we did this, our carcass value is incredibly high. We didn't have to select for it. Nature selects for it. And our number one trait across all of our cattle, I've tested 600 heads so far, straight DNA. Our number one trait is RFI, conversion. They convert what they eat. And what we've learned also, like in breeding heifers, if you don't gain one to one and a half pounds per head per day on forage, you're not going to breed. Okay. So the average daily gain must be there as well. So 
all these people that have promoted grass genetics need to be smaller and less performing. You know, you're killing yourself just as much as the guy who says they have to be single trait selected into carcass value in order for you to make a living. Both of the both ends of that spectrum are are very false. Yeah, the the six hundred pound Coriente versus the sixteen hundred pound, you know, high power Angus. Neither one of those work. We no. got to find something that's you know eight to twelve hundred pounds. Yes, that that works for everybody. Uh, I was I was listening to you. Uh, talk about you know the 84, 84 days to recreate the oocytes to rebreed after toxicity exposure, um, and I've heard some of that, and I I started to wonder, is there a is there a base fertility problem in the nation's cow herd because because we've just been feeding so much condition and fertility into our herd is is yeah. there maybe an underlying fertility problem? So, yeah. and where I'm getting with that is like, it sounds like you guys have done for 40 years what I've been trying to do. It's select on breeding without inputs, like pull the rug out from under them. Let's see what works. If you breed, you get a stay and we'll find out why later. Yes. And, and we're very unique. There's only a couple other, you know, to my knowledge, uh, purebred operations in the country that select completely that way and so are creating um, a true uh, cattle with true ability to convert whatever forage you have and rebreed and breed and and also to last 10 years so that's been another thing that has has come about um, in our process is we have more cows that stay till 10 um, which, you know, is far more profitable because we can sell more younger cattle. You might and get some angry phone calls from cow traders and sell by guys that say that you shouldn't own that cow past six years old because of the appreciation curve. Ab absolutely. But we all know that, um, you know, my little phrase is you sell in the come, which means what's to come, you know, and that's what people buy. You know, if I was to offer, which we do, if I was to offer uh, bred mature cows or first calf heifers, people always want the first calf heifers and they're willing to pay more for them than the proven cow. So, you know, there's it's a little funny, isn't it? It, it is a little funny <laughs> how people, you know, think and process through that. But yes, and I completely agree. We've seen over and over and over because we've tried genetics from everywhere, everyone. And you the consistent thing that we see is the lack of fertility in cattle because they were selected for one extreme or another. And, and that's where our industry is today. And we have rewarded that thought process by you know yes you you know you're a good old boy and you bought this and that that's going to work good and they use the you know the highest epd bull and the next year the calves are still 400 pounds at weaning 
And then they get on the treadmill and they so oh, here's a bull that's got higher EPDs yet. So I'm going to use it and I'm going to get 700 pound calves. The next year rolls around and they get 400 pound calves and they don't understand what the difference is. And they have never looked at their environment. They've never looked at their forage. They've never looked at their soil. Um, you know, it, it's just a vicious circle that you know, most people end up being on. And you can put the best bull in the world on, on crappy cows and it's still not going to do, not no. going to do great. No, because again, the cow controls three fourths of the genomic output. And then, you know, the epigenetic side of it too is, is huge. And so you've got all the guys and I've done lots of embryo work over the years and you've got all the guys that do all their embryo work, but they forget or they, fail to understand that the epigenetic value of that recip comes through in that calf. So unless you use a recip that's very similar to the donor cow, your result in that calf is not going to be what you're hoping for. And then in most cases too, they're using an unproven popular bull and there's zero ability to move a program forward with that kind of a thought process. So it's obvious you have to have good cows. Yes. And I understand, it's my understanding that there's basically two ways to get good cows. You make your own or you buy the ranch they're standing on. Yes. And Is both of them come with the environment. If you're making your own, it's in your environment. If you buy the ranch they're standing on, you're buying the environment as well. So that being said, if, you know, everything was different today and you and me went and bought a ranch mm -hmm. that didn't have any cows and we went and we bought cows, how long would it take us to have good cows? So you could like, it depends on if, well, you and I, knowing what we know, we could have good cows <laughs> in five years. But there would be a large fallout in that process um, to get to the five years because it's all about sorting for the cows that have the ability to move you forward. And the quicker you you sort the ones out that don't have that ability, the faster you can get to where you need to be. Let's say we'd start with a thousand cows, right? How many would still be there in five years? Um, probably 150. Interesting. I would have thought it would have been a little more, but nowhere close to 500. No, you know, people say, and we've, we've been working on it too, but people say, um, you know, I'm going to buy these cows and they're going to be great. And I'm going to build, you know, a great cow herd. And what, why most then will sell out and not put in the time is that five years down the road, they soon realize that they have very little left of what they spent all their money on. And they're disillusioned by the dream that I'm going to, you know, create a great cow herd. Um, and it's like I say over and over and over, it's a life's work. 
and it takes twice as long to get where you want to be than you ever imagined. And twice as much money. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hey, can we take a quick break? I got to sure. go. I got to go pee and recycle some coffee. Me too. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay. Oh, needed that. Um, so one of the things that we talked about kind of at the beginning is, is where you were at near North of Lawrence, Kansas. And you, you were talking about that there was a lot of pressure um, from urban sprawl and, and conversion of land. Now, something I've kind of realized in the last two months, and maybe I was late to the party, or maybe I'm just an early conspiracy theorist on this, but it seems like we're a nation of tenant farmers and ranchers now, and that the owner operator is is becoming a very rare thing and the numbers of owner operators don't seem to be increasing and i'll get where i'm going in just a minute but it seems like you know we, we since covid started and everybody you know work from home everybody can work from home that's great oh well i don't need to go to the office to be in meetings i just need high-speed internet to do my job I can sell this $2 million house that I can't, that I don't really like in a place that kind of sucks to live in. And I can go live north of Lawrence next door to this ranch and have this great house. And they'll, you know, buy five acres and build a big house on it. How much of an issue is it? Do you see it in the future, not just encroachment by, you know, urban sprawl moving into some operations that are close to town, but also, uh, the unaffordability of land for new operators to come in and start a new operation. Where do you see that going? Yeah, that's a great question. We, you know, we certainly experience encroachment all the time. Um, uh, I think, you know, back to your comment about conspiracy theory, I, what we see happening is that, you know, the government is going to drive agriculture to a certain segment of this country and yes it's going to be pretty much about tenant farming um or whatever tenant farming ranching we're going to be you know the few of us that are out here are going to be allowed to and paid for and those kinds of things we're going to have to you know uh work through new taxes like carbon and you know, all those kinds of things that are coming as well, uh, because people don't understand the basis of how nature works and the importance that, you know, cow, the role cows play um, in grazing lands for that. But yes, you know, we like I said, we see the land values going up around us almost daily. Um you know, we see part of the land that we lease, uh, you know, has is selling. Um, but then we get more opportunities at other lands. It's just some of it just may not be quite as convenient as what we have now. And, you know, in 30 years, like my nephew, you know, he may decide to sell everything we have out for a tremendous amount of money and move to an area where there's more opportunity from a land standpoint. I'm not really sure where that 
is today because like I tell people, you know, there's Priuses everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You're east of Highway 81, friend. And yes, it's it's a totally different world east of 81. Yes. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, Highway 81 basically goes from Montana to Texas. East of that line, there's a lot of people. Yes. West of that line, there's not. And I I think the number is, like Highway 81 almost divides the country east-west in half. East of it, like almost seven is where almost 70% of the people live. 20% of us live in, or then like 20% on the Pacific coast. And then just yeah. this big old strip down through the plains in the mountain West where. Right. It's fairly and, and I believe, yeah. And I believe that's where you're going to find everything in the near, you know, in the future is that it's, we're all going to be in the plains uh, pushed to us, you know, a specific area, what they call the flyover States, you know, where it's not mountainous and picturesque and, you know, uh, a great playground for the average, you know, person who works and looks for a play, a getaway. So, but yeah, I, I, I definitely see that happening. Um, but, you know, but it's like the other, like I said, the positive side of it is, is that our land is always worth more too. So we can trade fewer acres in for larger acres. Um, so the equity change would be, you know, a good thing. And that's really what this business is about to us is building equity. It's not just about cows. Um, it's about building equity. So it's an interesting little conversation we're having. So you're suggesting you'd be suggesting to move West and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything's right or wrong because, you know, I, it's interesting that, you know, you would move west to where land is a little cheaper. Yep. Then there's people that are kind of where I am and further west. Um, well, specifically, there, I had a friend in northeast Colorado that was concerned about water availability. Like they're mm-hmm. having water well issues. So they moved from northeast Colorado to the Nebraska Sandhills. Um, I have another friend that's in California. And they're moving to Texas because of land price. I have a friend in Texas that's moving to Missouri because of land price. Right. <laughs> I have a friend in Missouri that's moving to Texas because of land price. Right. It's it's almost like it's it, perspective. it, it doesn't make any sense. Nothing no. doesn't make sense. It really is perspective. And and our thought is we wouldn't go probably very far because you can get an hour north and a little west of us and it's very rural and and there's nothing there to drive people to it so you know we we when we make changes within our thought process or our operation we truly look at you know what are the long-term effects here what uh can we look at long term it's always, I don't know very many people that look at things as long-term as I always do. 
um, because this is a absolutely a long-term business. And if you're not in it for a hundred years, then, you know, you're, cause that's reality. And the other thing, like my brother-in-law and I say is when we're dead, it doesn't matter because we're dead. That's true. So but the next generation can do with it what they want to. But and, and somebody that's got your blood running through their veins has got to figure out how to fix what you screwed up 50 years ago. It, exactly. They got to figure but, out how to clean those ponds. <laughs> but the good thing is, right. But the good thing is, is that we take that every day in our operation, we have those conversations with the younger generation. And the younger generation is always included in those conversations. We're a little unique in how we work with our younger generations as compared to a lot of long-term family ranches too. The, the younger generation is is has just as much say um, and uh, thought and input and uh, as we do. And it's the only way we know for them to learn while we're still here. Let them participate in the decision-making process. Yes. And see the outcomes of their decisions. Yeah, and I think that's very valuable. And I was just thinking, you know, just kind of rolling around in my head what you said about, you know, you're not here for a good time. You're here for a long time. Yep. And I feel <laughs> that, you know, it's when I do something, you know, if I'm going to do something on a ranch, like a tree clearing project, or even if I'm going to build a, build a crossing, like knock right. down the edges of a canyon so I can run a fence through there. I think right. about what's it going to be like to live with this in another decade? Right. What's this going to be like, you know, in 15 years? Well, because 15 years, you know, that that's my history on this ranch. Dad has history going back to the, the mid eighties and I can right. talk to him by, Hey, when you did that in 88, why didn't, you know, what could we do different to make it look better now? And those are the kind of questions I like to ask myself. It's like, what's this going to be like to live with in 50 years? Right. And, and, and that kind of circles back to my original comment about ponds. Dad said there wouldn't be, but just a handful of them that he ever would have built. He would have opted for more pipes and more tanks. Right. And okay. Well, he said that 10 years ago mm -hmm. and he's been saying it. Now I'm living with 30 to 40 year old water systems. Yes. You know, those have their own challenges. Uh, yes. I've had to dig up. I've got, I've got a small leak in a line right now that has to go out and be dug up and, and fixed and 35 year old glue joints on PVC. Yes. You know, that's probably, you know, I'll just have to dig that one up and none of the rest will be a problem for another 50 years. Right. Right. Well, so, you know, in the last 30 years, the positive side of PVC is there's this new product called PEX now you know, which is pipe that just unrolls and you can get that in 500 foot sections. So, you know, it's a very different animal to work with as well. So that, you know, that's an example where technology has absolutely helped us, especially out here in, in a rural landscape where rocks are an issue and, you know, all those kinds of things are too. 
But it's interesting to listen to you talk about what your dad said. And we're very much in the same thought process as far as water goes that, you know, um, you know, the the water systems, the cleaner water is 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 a huge issue in production, consistent production on the ranch for cattle. Water is huge, huge, huge. And I think far more than what anyone talks about and maybe understands completely at this point, but we're certainly seeing, you know, that it is a major factor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, water water is a basis of life. Without without good water, life can't exist. Right. Right. Absolutely. So we got to kind of start moving out of here. Um, what would be the advice you wish you had when you started 40 years ago? And what would be the advice you'd give to somebody that's wanting to start tomorrow? <laughs> um, the advice I wish I had. I did a lot of traveling young and talked to tremendous numbers of cattlemen ranchers across the country and the reason i did that was to try to find perspective and value um, and understanding from true experience there is nothing better than true experience um, i have found and so i just wish that some of those guys that i visited with at that point would have maybe been a little more forthcoming with the truths <laughs> that we, we end up learning along the way. And maybe at that age, you know, we're certainly not ready to hear all those truths. I understand that as well, but there's certainly some basics that I think, uh, and those are things I try to share with younger people. And a lot of times I get the look that, okay, old man, you know, you, <laughs> you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay. And so my response typically is, let's talk about this again in 20 years. And let, then let's see what your thought process is. You know, I'm not yeah. going to argue with you about it. Let's, let's just see if you can make it through a drought cycle and a cattle cycle. And yes. then we can talk about it. Then we can talk about it. Yes. And what you learned on the other side, if you made it through, has the that cattle cycle and a drought cycle. Ooh, it's taken an awful lot of guys out in the last couple of years, hasn't it? Yes. And like I said to, you know, a couple of young guys were telling me recently, you know, that they had a few more opens than they wished. And I said, boo-hoo. I said, uh, you know, how many times, how many cycles have we been through droughts? And the cat, you know, the cattle that didn't breed were worth $300. Not 1500 or 1200 most of them that i've been a part of until now <laughs> right and so i said you know yes we we hate it when we have some open females but at least they're worth something today and yes our cost of input have dramatically went up but at least they're worth something yeah and that's a great point and i guess you know I, i've watched other areas be on the better side of the drought curve 
at this point in the cattle cycle. And for a change, I'm actually in a wet area when everybody else is dry and Uh the cattle market is just riding a rocket to the moon right now. (laughs) Right. Because there simply aren't many. So I personally am looking to try to unload a lot of mine over the next two to three weeks and and try to Mm -hmm. cash out while the getting's good. Right. Right. So, um, what are, what, what's the biggest challenge you're either facing personally in your business or that we're facing in the industry that you'd like to talk about? Um, I, I, I think, um, the largest challenge for us in the last, in our, in our operation in the last few years has certainly been coming to grips with understanding as we were talking earlier, this, this issue with the toxicities, um, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And as I talked to a good friend of mine, that's a medical doctor too, we, we can, we discuss those things on both a human side and an animal side. He also has cattle. And so he very much understands that. But a lot of the things I've been able to to come to grips with, I've learned through studying the human side because, you know, basically an animal cell works the same. Um, and so um, it, it's been a tremendous eye opening experience. And that, um, you know, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to be here after all of this that's happening now within our world we've got to have cattle that function efficiently on forage. That's all that will move forward as we see it. So. And I agree. So if somebody wanted to buy some of your good cattle, how would they do that? Well, um, you know, being full-time ranchers, we sell cattle, uh, from the ranch all the time, but our 36th annual, uh, bull and well production sale is always the first Saturday in February. And so we'll be selling 45 bulls that are forage raised. Um, they'll be coming two year olds and then we'll have, you know, some select groups of females, uh, from commercial types to some, you know, nice purebred types to, uh, that will be offered in that sale. So, very cool. All right, where can people find you if they'd like to know more or get a hold of you? So we're on Facebook. Um, you can look at uh, Craig Geffier Swear Engine Ranches on Facebook. We have a website through AgBoost. Um, it's uh, SwearEngineAngus.com. www. Um, so those are places, or, you know, you can just pick up the phone and call me. Um, I'm pretty available most of the time or try to be so. All right. Very cool. What do you want to end with? Um, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy talking about cattle and, you know, and, and listening to other perspectives. And like I said, uh, um, it's a way of life for us and it's just who we are. And we, we try to always challenge status quo and challenge people's thoughts to think maybe a little differently or outside the box. Um, so I think that's important. Awesome. Great stuff. 
Well, I sure appreciate your time today, Craig. And uh, I think I'll let you go ahead and get on with your day. Thank you, Brian. I enjoyed it. All right. I enjoyed it too. All right, gang. Go have a great week. We'll see you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.